This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So this week in Business Week Talks, Al Kelly, he's chairman and CEO of the world's largest payments network. We're talking about Visa, 3.3 billion Visa cards in use. Full disclosure, I've got one or two. Um, More than 200 uh, countries. Al, thank you for for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Carol. Thank you. I have to say, what's great about talking to someone like you that's got such a global perspective is you do have an incredible vantage point about what's going on in the world, what's going on with consumers. So tell us what you're seeing. Actually, you know, despite all of this thought that there was a recession coming. We don't see it. You know, in fact, our fourth quarter numbers, which for us were September 30 numbers, were better than the third quarter. The U.S. was up 8%. The international was up 12%, excluding China. Uh, Europe was up 13% when you exclude the U.K., which has done a little bit of self-inflicted wound to themselves. So what's wrong with everyone that we're talking so much about recession? I think it must just be the cycle. You know, it's been a long time that we've had this upswing, and I think that people just look at the history and say it's got to go down at some point. But, you know, the consumer has stayed extremely strong around the world. The only place we see any weakness is in the U.K. And as I said, that's kind of related to the whole Brexit situation. But other than that, the world looks pretty darn good. And so let's talk about consumers and go a level down because you have more insights probably than almost anyone into where they're spending, how they're spending, what they're buying, what are they buying? Where, where is where's their money going? Is it experiential, like everybody keeps saying? Well, in, all, in, in our world, there's a couple of things that are really dri- driving the increases in the number of transactions we're seeing. One is obviously e-commerce. You know, people are jumping on their phones and jumping on their iPads and jumping on their uh, computers and and buying in big ways. We're seeing though every month those numbers. The growth in e-com is anywhere between two and three times the growth in the face-to-face world every every single month. Uh, we're also seeing people continuing to travel. Uh, there was a real downturn in travel back in December and January. If you remember, that's during the height of the U.S.-China trade talks. It right. was during the height of the Brexit conversations, and then we had the 45-day U.S. government shutdown and almost immediately consumers started to just stay at home and not travel. But we've seen that pick up, especially in the last uh, six months. And that's always a good sign that when people are willing to leave their home country and go to another country, that's a, that's a, a very, very good thing. The other thing that we're seeing is an increased amount of smaller ticket items being used uh, using digital payments. And a lot of that, I think, is driven by mass transit. We Mm -hmm. are really excited about mass transit. Just in the last uh, 90 days, we've seen open systems in Edinburgh and Sao Paulo. Uh, We started in July, I guess June here in the MTA in New York, where uh, we're only at 18 stations from Grand Central Station to Atlantic Avenue in, in Brooklyn. But by the end of October of 2020, the MTA hopes to be in all 424 subway stops. Are people using it? It's Absolutely. the whole idea of tap and go, right? Absolutely. It's tap and go. It's so convenient. It's better experience for the merchant. It's better experience for the consumer. We, we hit a million transactions in the first seven weeks. And we had no, and that's at 18 stations. Uh, it's it's truly amazing. Oh, t- absolutely continuing to grow. Tap to pay has grown 
hugely around the world with the exception of the United States, interestingly enough. Well, I was going to ask you about that because we've done a lot of work Mm -hmm. in the magazine about the adoption of those sorts of systems, especially in Asia, uh, especially mobile payments, all of these things. What is it about the United States, which is usually pretty innovative in, in many ways and early adopting in terms of technologies? Why is the U.S. lagging? The U.S. is lagging because it first, it goes back uh, – you have to go back about six or seven years at least where the U.S. was much slower to adapt chip in the card. Right. And the, it took so long to adopt chip. At that point in time, people around the rest of the world were moving past actually just dipping the card to actually tapping. And the reality is that the, the other countries have moved hugely ahead of us. You have countries like Poland and Hungary that are over 90% tap to pay right. in the face-to-face world. In the U.S., we have a very interesting situation. The vast majority of the businesses are set and plumbed to be able to facilitate tap to pay. It's replacing the hundreds and hundreds of millions of cards. And the banks, rightly so, want to do it on their normal cycle. So by the end of this year, we'll have a, over 100 million cards in the United States that will be tapped to pay uh, enabled. And by the end of next year, it'll be over 300 million. So this will take a little time. Right now, tapped to pay in the United States is about 2% penetration. I think we'll get to five or six next year. And then based on our experience around the world, it will really take off. Well, does it become China? Does the world eventually become China? We were at conversations. We constantly talk about it. It's in the magazine often. That basically, you've got your phone in China, and that's that's all you need. They don't want cash or, or any other kind of mode of payment. Is that where we move towards? I don't think fully. You know, the interesting thing about payments, and I've been in and around this industry for three and a half decades now, it is an extraordinarily local business. Uh, it is driven by tradition. It's, been, it's driven by uh, laws. It's driven by history. So you look at some of the biggest economies in the world, Mexico, Germany, Japan, they're huge cash societies still to the, till this day. Right. And they've been slow to adopt. And I think over time, they'll, that adoption will pick up. But I, I think there's still, for a long period of time, going to be a place in the world for all kinds of different form factors with certainly a card and a phone probably continuing to be the predominant ones. And you but guys I, don't care because you get a piece of all of that. We, we're, right? we, we, are, we are agnostic uh, in many ways. We're agnostic to who issues credentials. Yeah. We're agnostic into what form factor those credentials are in. We don't pick winners or losers. We, we want to be in the middle of moving as much money in the world as we possibly can and making sure that we have the best network that has the best sanction controls, the best fraud prevention controls, and can move with speed and has scale. And that's our objective. Another place where you've been pretty open-minded, it feels like, Al, is when you look at the competitive landscape, it feels like you're as likely to partner up or make an investment with someone who, if you were in business school, you might say, well, no, 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 that's that's an enemy. Like that is <laughs> right. an arch enemy. What are they doing? You've done some of those deals. How do you sort of figure out who's your friend, who's not, or does it just not matter? There's two very interesting and distinct things about the payments ecosystem. One is that it requires multiple players to bring it all together. The second thing that's really unique about it is that we try to grow market share every day. You know, we're not simply just competing for the same fixed pie of right. share. I come to work every day thinking about how to grow that, that pie. So in that payment ecosystem world, there are thousands of players. I mean, we, we have 16,000 financial institution partners around, around the world from very, very small fintechs to JP Morgan Chase and, and, and Bank of America. 
it is a it is an ecosystem that has some frenemies. Uh, we compete with PayPal, but we have a relationship with PayPal. I talked to Dan Schulman last last evening. Um, so we work together on certain things, and in other cases, we compete. We certainly want to work together on things like standards yeah. uh, because it, it makes the user experience for customers that much better when we work together on standards. What about the – right, you can work with everybody and anybody. You're like, that's terrific. The downside is, though, my understanding is you're paying a little bit more to get some of those folks, like a, a bank, like a J.P. Morgan or something, to issue cards on your network. Tell me about that competitive part of the landscape. Will that continue to go up in terms of giving out incentives? Well, the, re- the reality is that it is a very competitive area of space. Right. And um, we're, we're excited because we just extended our deal for 10 years through the ne- end of the next decade with J.P. Morgan Chase, who happens to be our biggest client in, in, in the world. But I think we could still – there's still enough economics to create win-win situations for us and, and our partners. And a lot of our growth, Carol, come, fr- come from volume. I mean, last yeah. quarter, there were 5.3 billion more visa transactions than there were a year ago. So that's 57 million more transactions every day for the 92 days in that quarter. Right. So there's still a, a plenty of room to grow. And the reality is there's seven, still $17 trillion spent by consumers around the world in cash and check. And there's $20 billion spent by small businesses and medium-sized businesses on uh, checks and, and wire transfers. So there's just, in, as I look at it, the glass is half full and there's enormous upside. So even if you have to pay more to incent somebody to be on your network, it's okay because volume's going up, basically? Vo- volume's going up. And by the way, we're working on new use cases every single day. So for instance, we now, we use for our first 56 years in business, all we did, we were in the business of pulling funds from bank accounts. Now we're in the business of pushing money to bank accounts. So we're working mm-hmm. with insurance companies. And if you have a, a claim for your car or your home, now instead of them cutting a check, they'll send the money directly using Visa's rails in, right into your bank account. You get the money faster. It's a more efficient operating transaction for the insurance company. Right. And we get some volume. And there, there's, we did uh, $2 billion, $2 billion of those push transactions last year. So it's becoming a big business for us. And so strategically, when you're looking to buy other companies, when you're looking to take equity investments, first of all, you've done a lot of that lately. It's been a pretty busy year from that perspective. What are you looking at? Where is the sort of white space you're going toward or what are the uh, places you're, you're trying to fill there, especially versus growing organically? Well, our first option always is to try to build it ourselves. And if we can't build it, then partner. And if we can't partner with somebody, then actually look to buy. We're not an investment company. Uh, we will only invest in companies after we have a commercial agreement mm-hmm. with them. And we'll only do that if it's important to the organization that we have an agreement with. The We did make a number of acquisitions in the, in the last quarter. Most of them are, are aimed at capabilities, things that bring n- new uh, kind of ancillary services. So uh, we bought a company called Verify, which helps with disputes when mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. you forgot what you bought or you bought something you thought it was red and it turned out to be green or you thought it was medium and it turned out to be large. Uh, we bought a company called Earthport, which is a- allowing us to take this 
push capability I talked about. And now we can link to virtually every bank account in the world in the top 50 markets in the world. So we can send money from a card to a bank account or uh, a card to a card or a bank account to a bank account. And that's all part of our strategy to extend beyond payments into the movement of any funds in, in the world. Which I think, like, think about how efficient that is. But I also think about as a consumer, okay, I think about privacy issues and I think about security issues. So what are you doing hand in hand as you grow out your network and your services and your offerings to consumers to make sure everything stays safe and secure? Because I feel like that's the big question. It's a great question. Look, the payment ecosystem is grounded in trust. And if that trust breaks down, consumers are going to have real concerns. So we, we, I suspect there are very few companies that have more people who work in cybersecurity than we do. We have uh, 850 people in cybersecurity. That's what they come to work to do every day. It's 5% of our workforce globally right. is cybersecurity. Can you get all the talent you want in the cyber It's world? not easy, but yeah. we, we work on it very, very hard. And obviously, we have some geographic expansion, so we have cyber experts around the world. So if we all, we tried to get them all in San Francisco, we wanted. But if we're willing to be open yeah. and consider the full globe as our, our recruiting platform, I think it it, it helps uh, tremendously. But we we put a lot of time and effort into thinking about security in in all kinds of ways. Include and part of that obviously is customer privacy, and to make sure that when consumers have their data floating around in the payment ecosystem to the degree that we can control it. We, we won't uh, sell uh, any proprietary data of any consumer that we have. And so as you look at the companies out there, and as you mentioned, you've been in and around the payment space for better than three decades now. You know, fintech is one of these buzzwords that I feel like we've all been getting our arms around for the last couple of years. But as you look at it, what's the most exciting thing that you're seeing either in terms of a capability or in terms of something we as consumers or businesses might be able to do that really was unimaginable a few years back? I mean, the first thing I'd say is you're absolutely right that uh, fintech is a, is a word that could choose for a lot of things. Yeah. I happen to believe I have the honor and privilege of leading the best fintech story in the world. I mean, this is a company that's the 10th market, biggest market cap company in the world, and we've only been in existence as a public company for 11 years. Right. The There are a lot of uh, really, really neat uh, uh things that have happened in the industry. I, I happen to be a huge fan of tokenization, where it seems so simple, but it, it's not so simple, where we want to make sure that if you lose your phone and you have a payment credential on it, that you don't also have to replace your card. And so your your phone, if you have a card on, on your phone, it's tokenized, meaning that there's a, a single-use uh, number that's connected only through a token vault that we have in in our data systems so that all we have to do is if you get a new phone we just issue a new token and in our token vault tie your card back to that that new token and that's going to really give a lot of uh, sense of uh, comfort to consumers who are concerned about uh, their card numbers out there all over the place. Mm-hmm. We're working with retailers who have long lists of cards on file, working with them to tokenize those right. so that if there's a data breach, the reality is we can kill all those tokens right away and the card will continue to work for the consumer. So I think it's a very, very uh, exciting development and we're building uh, tokenization into many, many of our applications around the world and working with our partners to do so. One thing, speaking of partners, Apple partnering up with Goldman, uh, they talked about, I think Goldman talking about it being one of the you know most successful partnerships that they've had in a long time. Do you expect more partnerships like that in terms of big tech 
partnering up with, uh, you know, kind of main players in the financial community? I think, Carol, that was a unique situation. Mm. Um, Apple's one of the few big, visible, terrific retail brands that had not done a co-brand card. And that's really what they did with Goldman. Through Goldman's new bank of Marcus, they created a a uh, co-brand card. Amazon already has a co-brand card. It's with us and with uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase as as the bank. So I, I think it's a, a an exciting move for Goldman. That said, it's way too early to declare whether it's successful or not. It will take years to determine. There's a lot of interesting free services on it, and we'll see how the economics of this pan out over time. But I have no doubt that because Apple is such a terrific brand, and by the way, a great partner of ours, we work with them on many things, including with we power Apple Pay. Right. Um, so I think because their brand is so strong and they're a great marketing company, I suspect that this product will be successful. Well, and as you think about that sort of competitive landscape, we've talked a little bit about it already, but it's not clear and clean, you know, it, and, and I feel like maybe back in the day, I mean, you worked at American Express at some point. Uh, I had some family who worked at American Express. It was very clear that you walk into a restaurant, it's like, all right, I'm either paying with this card or that card. <laughs> it's, it's not so simple anymore. When you're competing for a consumer, who do you see as your competition? If, if you're thinking about me, what, what are you thinking about competitively? Well, I think the first thing that's important to understand, we really are a B2B technology and capabilities company. That's what we are at the core. Our, we get to the consumer through a yes. series of financial institutions. And it's really those financial institutions that have to deliver differentiated value and service and capabilities in order to win the hearts and minds of, of consumers. So we work very, very closely with our banks to make sure that they're doing things that are differentiated. So, for instance, we have a Visa platform called Infinite, and that's meant it's a very high-end product, product platform, and it's meant to compete with, say, the American Express Platinum and Centurion cards. Not every bank does it, but a number of banks have built this Infinite platform. And if you look at uh, you know, the J.P. Morgan Chase playbook, yeah. they clearly have gone uh, under Gordon Smith's leadership to who is an, an alum of American Express as well, has gone to mm -hmm. the higher end and really going after the affluent customer that American Express has. The Sapphire done. card. The Sapphire yeah. card, the Sapphire Reserve card. I mean, the value proposition of those cards is, is pretty awesome. Right. Uh, Capital One, who used to just really focus on receivables back when I competed against them as an issuer, now has some of the most interesting cashback uh, products and, and rich value products in in the marketplace. So I think that there's, particularly at the high end, particularly in the United States and Canada, there still is a tremendous competitive landscape around the high end of uh, of consumers. Well, and one thing I wanted to ask you is when you think about the younger consumer, right? You want to grab them because I know my first credit card that I got out of college, or the first two. I, I still have them. So I do wonder, how do you get the younger consumer? How do you catch their attention? Well, again, I think that's in us working in conjunction with uh, our big traditional bank partners as well as some of the fintechs that these yeah. young people are is there any fintech to. in particular, Al, that you really feel like is resonating with the younger generation? Well, I think uh, – 
I'd probably have to go outside the United States to use an example. I think GoJack in Southeast Asia, which yeah. is the, a incredible organization that started with scooter transportation and has now gone into all kinds of delivery services and et cetera, has really uh, attracted many, many uh, millennials. The interesting thing, though, Carol, is that I have five children and four of them are at the age where they have cards. And, and millennials still like rewards, too. So yeah. in the United States, right. the interesting thing is they, they like building up their points with yeah. the various banks as well. Yeah, I believe it. Hey, listen, there's something we do in Business Week Talks that we just kind of shoot some questions at you. One of the things we like to ask is, what's the biggest existential threat to your company or industry? Well, I think cybersecurity. It, you know, it's always at the top of my my list. I, you know, the the bad guys unfortunately have access to the same technology the good guys do. And when yeah. we look ahead over the next decade, you're going to have five G really take off, Internet of Things take off, artificial intelligence and machine language getting to the next level, quantum computing perhaps starting to show up. And all of the, that technology is going to create enormous opportunity for value to be delivered to consumers, but it's also going to create potential uh, risks to technology-based infrastructure companies like, like we are. So yeah. I, I don't say no to uh, cybersecurity investment re- requests because uh, we have to stay current, we have to stay vigilant, and uh, we have to stay enormously focused right. on it. Right, protect your brand. Yep, exactly. We know you do a lot of teaching inside Visa. Mm-hmm. Culture is very important to you. Oh, if you had to distill it down, what makes the Visa culture distinct? You know, we, we're... Uh, uh, gotten to be a fairly big company that still acts and behaves like a small company. There's some good to that, a yeah. lot of good to that. There's some, you know, immaturity to it at times. To be quite, quite candid, but it's a very team-oriented company. It, it, we don't operate in silos. We love to get together and, and debate issues and solve problems. And and uh, you know, we're a very young company. There's a lot of entrepreneurial and innovative spirit to it. The company was 5,000 employees when we went public in, two, in March of 2008, and now we're just about. 19,000. So by definition, most of our people have been with us less than a decade. Um, So it's it's an exciting culture, lots of young people, very global. Uh, We're very conscious of time zones. And when we have phone calls, we try not to have a U.S. bias. We really, Mm. I want this company to be a global company that's headquartered in the United States. I do not want it to be a U.S. company that has international outlets. And there's a difference in mindset about that. And we have lots and lots of people. I I haven't figured it out, but I'll bet you we have employees who hold 140, 150 different passports from different countries. Right, right. I love that, which is why you spend so much time on the road, which is what you told us before we got going. What's the best advice a mentor gave you? To make sure that while you're dealing with the urgent, you never forget the important. Mm. Um, you know, in a company like ours, I, I realized early on that when you do business in all but five countries, we do business in all but five countries, and those are the ones the U.S. has sanctions against. We have offices in 80 countries. Something goes wrong in the world every day. We've been in this, we've had offices, of, uh, we had our offices in Nairobi, we're part of a Somalian a terrorist attack within the last year. Right. Our offices in Denver were across the street from the Highlands Hills School that mm-hmm. had a shooting. You can get – you have what's happened in Venezuela, now what's happened in Chile. Stuff can go wrong every day, and I need to make sure that I'm making sure that our employees are safe and we're dealing with those things. 
But there's a lot of things I have to be thinking about in terms of the future and strategy, et cetera. So I have to keep the important in the front of my mind while I'm dealing with the urgent. And one of the things that I did after the first six months in the job, getting frustrated that I wasn't spending enough time on strategy, I set aside two days a month that I call CEO days. And we don't figure out what the agenda is until about a week before. And we don't set time frames on the subjects we talk about. We'll talk about two or three subjects each of those two days based on what's hot at the time. And I'll get in the room only. the It's, it's not a committee. It's different people each time depending upon what the issue is. And it gives me the peace of mind to know that I've got these two days every month where I'm going to be 100% focused on the future and the strategy of the company. Great stuff. That's a great. really good note to end on. Al Kelly, Chairman and CEO of Visa. Thank you so much. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. I was thinking we need CEO days. I know. That God, is brilliant. I love a CEO day. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.